0: Hey Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Maggie Cheney, who is a farmer at Rock Steady Farm. Maggie grew up growing and loving food. They've been involved with food and farming their entire life, both urban and rural. In 2006, they helped start an elementary food garden program in Oakland, California, and then went to University of California, Santa Cruz, Center for Agroecology and sustainable food systems. After farming a bit in the Hudson Valley and Staten Island, they moved to New York City in 2011, where they met many of the rock steady community partners in New York City while leading a diversity of food justice and youth leadership program. Let's see what else they've done. Worked on the Food Sovereignty Fund, which funds food access projects across New York State by sourcing from specifically BiPIC and LGBTQ, I a plus farmers as well as supports on advisory boards for numerous food organizations in the region. In 2015, D, which is Maggie's business partner, co-founded Rocksteady Farm, which is a queer-owned and operated cooperative vegetable farm rooted in social justice, food access and farmer training located in Millerton, New York. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: So talk to us a little bit about what uh, drives you. What, what got you into food and growing food?
1: Well, I've been around farms my whole life. My dad's a farmer and still is in the Boston area. And, um, I personally didn't know I was going to necessarily be a farmer when I was a kid, but, um, I have been drawn back to it over and over and again over the years. And so, um, I think no matter how I try to kind of like be involved with other um related kind of worlds in terms of ed- education and um food justice work um I always get drawn back to like a larger scale agriculture um so I think you know I've I love Millerton I love this area um and I'm definitely super passionate about the um, work we do at rock steady. Uh, so yeah, excited to be going into my 20, is it 20 years growing
0: now. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. So Militon New York is a very unique part of New York. And I actually, before we started, uh, the podcast that we actually, I've been there, I've, I spent a few months actually in that region. We actually lived there in an apartment there. Um, talk to us about the kind of unique climate and the environment of, of that area.
1: Uh, The Northeast is a pretty great place to grow food, honestly. I mean, I've grown food in California and there are huge challenges there, as many people know, um, around water access and now fires. And um, I think we're really lucky in that we have um, steady rain on and off. I mean, we do have, you know, bouts of drought, but um overall the climate's pretty great here and it's a shorter season but you know i talked to farmers in maine canada and you know it feels like a luxury to be able to farm um from april to november and uh we do have hoop houses at our farm we are trying to build two more um next spring so that helps with kind of season extension mm-hmm. that we want to do um in providing a little bit more uh, jobs opportunity for the farmers here, Rocksteady in the winter as well.
0: Gotcha. And so talk to me a little bit about um, when you started in 2015, how did you choose Millerton as an area?
1: Well, we had the opportunity, uh, two of us who founded Rocksteady were managing a farm that was on the land um, when it was previously a different farm and the farmer decided, um, he was going to move and offered, um, to kind of take over the business. And the, so the negotiation process started in 2015, um, and we ended up not taking over his business. You know, we, we didn't want his brand and same outlets, but, uh, we had, you know, farmed the land, it's incredible soil, it's a great location, just being mm-hmm. two hours n- north of New York City, um, which is really important to us uh, community-wise because a number of our farmers are from New York City, and uh, the people that we want to feed um, in the LGBTQ community um, are, a lot of them are based there, so being accessible, um by a pretty straightforward um you know 22 goes straight into um Manhattan area so it's it's an easy ride relatively um but yeah so that was a big draw and we're also really lucky there was a number of great projects starting up at the same time in the area too um so we felt like there was really great energy in terms of new, very justice-based projects, which are hard to come by in terms of like rural living, you know, where you can Mm. find yourself sometimes pretty secluded in different areas. um, But we felt like there was a strong community here um, that was building. um, We wanted to be a part of it.
0: Okay. So talk to us a little bit about what does the farm entail? You said it's got great soil. How many acres is the farm?
1: Uh, Right now we lease about, 13 acres, though we're growing on nine. So our um, production itself is um, all vegetables. At this point, we used to grow flowers. Uh, We transitioned out of flowers uh, two seasons ago. And um, we have, you know, access to a huge amount of water on the land. You know, it's a beautiful area, with lots of mountains and, yeah, just it's very rocky, which is where part of the reason our name comes from. Rocksteady mm. is there's a lot of rocks, but yeah. Um, other than that, it's um, yeah, it's a great, great spot.
0: Yes, gotcha. Now, why did you drop the flowers? Talk to us about that. Well, we dropped
1: it for a number of reasons. I think um, in the beginning we were viewing kind of our model as, you know, very high-end flowers that were going to help us kind of bring up our um, income, bring up the amount that we're able to pay our farmers in like financial stability. And then we were were hoping that we could kind of keep our vegetables in that like CSA range, not have to try to go into like high-end restaurants, edible flowers that kind of thing to try to get a higher um, income. And we ended up finding that the flowers were not as profitable as we thought. Um, and the just the mere aspect of running two very different enterprises and the same land was really mm. complicated, especially with something like flowers, which takes a ton of post-harvest handling and space and also a whole nother sales outlet that mm-hmm. um, and delivery route. It's It was a very complex um, enterprise. And so um, there was a moment when one manager was transitioning out and we were just like, you know what? Like, let's pause before we just try to hire another manager. And um, we decided to dive deep into the financials. And then when we started to think about it, it was, much more in line with the direction that we were getting called to, which was around um, really focusing on food access and um, also leaning more into farmer training for queer and trans farmers. So having the opportunity to kind of drop one enterprise enabled us to really pick up this other enterprise, which is our education and community work that we do. Um, And and that felt really right. That felt like something that, you know, our community of farmers, our community of um, eaters all wanted us to shift towards. Um, mm. and, and I don't regret it a bit, you know, I mean, well, I do a little bit. I mean, the flowers are gorgeous, you know, was, I miss having the beauty around, but in terms of logistics and mission and alignment with where we want to go in the future, I'm so happy we made that call.
0: Mm-hmm. So now with the flowers, the difference is obviously, let's say you harvest a zucchini, you basically put a zucchini in a bin and you sell it. But with flowers, especially if you're making mixed bouquets, you have to condition it. You have to make the bouquets. You have to store it in the cooler. And they are not something you can put in a crate. You usually have to spoke in a bucket. So there's mm-hmm. just a lot more of a challenge to deal with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the number of flowers that we're growing was a lot. And each one requires very different post-harvest handling you know it's not like all flowers get treated the same way some flowers you put into water sometimes you don't some flowers you put in the cooler some you don't you know it's like just a very involved yeah. process yeah
0: yeah so you said it's better for us just to let the people that do flowers do flowers and we'll just do the veggies
1: yeah yeah which are a lot in and of itself you know yes and so that's worked out i feel like our production has really started to hum when we went that route, just not navigating two totally different crop plans, also on the same land base. So tractor and you know, just cultivation work just has been really, really humming the last two seasons since we made that transition too.
0: All right. So walk us through a little bit of um, your scale of production. Like, what's your equipment regiment, and um, how are you set up?
1: So we are a very tractor-based farm. Uh, We have four tractors on site um, and two of them are more primary tillage based. Um, One is kind of like a backup primary tillage that we mostly use for mowing. Uh, And then we have one cultivating tractor um, that's only used for uh, weeding and cultivation. And, um, and the scale that we're to get a sense of it, you know, we're nine acres, but we're super diverse. Um, We have a 500 person CSA. um, And we also do large wholesale accounts um, for restaurant groups specifically dig in um, in New York City. And so it's quite a lot of food that we're producing. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, quick turnarounds with the land. So we'll plant something and then Right away, turn it into like okay, a lettuce bed, and then we'll go into cover crop. Um, so, our, and we're planting every week, essentially, um, for the a lot of the season up until September. Um, and what else to say? Yeah, I mean, we're we're doing what a lot of farmers are doing um, in terms of fighting the weeds in an organic. Uh, farm system is quite the challenge. Um, so we definitely utilize a lot of tractor weeding techniques and then we follow up with by hand as needed. Mm. Um, we have, um, incredible team. We're a team of nine, um, that are like in the field. I'm kind of part-time there's one other person who's part time because we spend some of our time in the office. Um, but in terms of just like, we've got a lot of hands, which is awesome. You know, that I think, yeah. Um, given how complex our admin is as a, um, sliding scale farm doing social justice work, um, we, you know, we have a lot of people involved and we have nine, you know, locations that we're dropping off our food. Um, so it's, you know, it takes a lot of people to run our operation and we're still trying to figure out how to, um, you know, select certain tractor implements that are really going to reduce labor. Um, so we're considering getting a transplanter, um, and, um, a few other things, but, um, Yeah, we'll see. You know, it's, we're kind of like this small scale, medium scale farm. So you're kind of like teetering on that edge of wanting larger machinery, but you don't really know if it's going to pay off in the long run, given your low um, margins. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And when you said you said part-time farmer, I was like, uh <laughs> But what you meant is part-time in the field, part-time in the office. So Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
0: All right. So okay, so you've got the so you're doing like a regular rototiller for tillage with a chisel plow or?
1: Um so we our rotation usually goes um we chisel once in the beginning of the season to break up any of the compaction. Um, or we're kind of um, plowing cover crop so that we're flipping that. And then we tend to um, go once with the disc, then the perfecta. And now we're, we're trying to just use the perfecta for final bed prep because it tends to be a little um, less intense on the soil. And um if we have very fine seeds we need to sow we'll go to a rototiller which could, because the beds do have a much finer tilth but other than that we're trying everything with the perfecta for final bed prep um and then we just we have a, a dibbler that we um essentially it kind of rolls over our beds and makes the lines and the holes for all of our plants
0: yes and now is that a dave hamilton special
1: no it's one we made um yeah it kind of a make-off of the previous farmer andy who was here before
0: gotcha gotcha yeah. very cool all right so now you're, you're farming that now you have the team um talk to us a little bit about uh you know the the systems and setup when you're farming do you have like very specific people do very specific roles or does everyone kind of just move around as they're kind of doing different things Yeah, that's
1: a great question. Um, I always try to ask that question too as a a manager of humans in a business like ours. Um, But so we're a cooperative farm. It's in our ethos to try to create um, a lot of different um, leadership positions on the farm and different management positions, um, which we feel like um, help lead to wanting to join the cooperative um, so the way that we run our farm is quite, um, you know, it's, there, are, it, there's a lot of room for autonomy in different areas. So we've got, um, a greenhouse manager who also helps manage kind of like the crop plan and, um, transplanting in the field. Um, they also oversee our hoop house tomatoes. Uh, we have a wash pack manager, Um, we have a, um, programs and education manager, which is a new position this year. Um, we have like tractor kind of like an irrigation point, um, which is also an evolving role trying to get a little bit more, um, people trained up on tractor work other than Dee and myself. So, Um, we've got another person who's learning a lot of those skills. Um, and we also have a harvest manager, um, which is a lot of coordinating of what is going to go in the CSA shares each week. Um, you know, what are our numbers for wholesale? Um, and I think that's it. it, Yeah. And then D and I are the general manager. So we kind of oversee the whole thing, um, and help, train and our point people for the whole team and kind of, um, manage the flow of everything. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Now, um, with that, how have you found the right people for the roles Do they just come to you? Do you move people around at all?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we've got an incredible group that have um been here for numerous years um a lot of them three years which doesn't sound like a lot when you're in a different work line of work but at a farm is Mm. um is a lot you know there's such high turnover at farms um so those folks you know some of them came with a lot of skills and had a you know an immediate place like mika already had tons of greenhouse work when we hired her. And so she started in the greenhouse manager role, um, right away. And other people have been trained kind of throughout the last couple of years, um, based on where we see their skills, um, and their interest. Um, so it's a little bit of both. And I'd say, um, we're very lucky in that, uh, we've, we have very highly skilled applicants every year. We've, um, I think, even though we're only in our sixth season, um, because our farm is quite different than a lot of other small, medium, organic farms, because of our social justice work that we do, as well as our LGBTQ identity, um, we get people from all over the country who apply, uh, and it's it's quite competitive. So uh, we've lucked out, you know, it's, it's been a journey from the, you know, our first few years where um, yeah. that was not the case at
0: all. Yeah. Well, you have a really tight ship and your fields look great. And so people want to work there. Um, they, they see the, and you have a lot of, um, you would do a lot of social justice too. And I know that's important for a lot of people too. And so I feel like that probably helps bringing in a good amount of applicants as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I so, think. I think that's really true,
0: yeah. So talk to us about that. You have a variety of food justice and then youth leadership programs and then social justice. Talk about those programs. What ages do you work with?
1: Yeah, so we have um, two primary areas that we focus our social justice work on. Um, One is food access work. So um, right now, about half of all of our food produced on the farm goes to low income people. Um, and that's through, um, partnerships with community organizations, as well as our sliding scale. Um, a lot of those people are, um, connected to us through LGBTQ centers and, um, queer health centers and things like that in New York city, um, as well as, um, like local food pantries, um, that are quite close to our farm. And then, um, so, that's one side of the, the social justice work that we do is just like addressing, kind of like in a band aid form, and in some way, the food inequities that we see around us. You know, we're not in the policy realm as much mm-hmm. as just like what can we do as farmers? And then um, the other side of our work is specifically working with um, LGBTQ communities, so, training um, farmers who want essentially a safe space to learn farming and don't feel like they can find that at other locations. Um, So right now we're doing weekend trainings on tractor um, skills, and we're also running a a program called Pollinate, which Mm -hmm. is a paid apprenticeship program um, that's for adults who are beginner farmers And, you know, know that this is the work they want to do, but want to gain a lot more skills in it. And not just farming skills, but also um, skills on cooperative development, financial literacy, um, the administration side of things, um, and also really importantly, kind of work culture and, and how do you um, create a thriving, healthy workspace. And which is something that's not often a focus in agriculture, you know? So it's something we definitely highlight as part of our farm is like the work environment that we're trying to create. That is not always what you find in other farms that are are very top down, very, um, you know, exploitative essentially of a lot of the workers.
0: Mm. Uh-huh. So now one thing I noticed is like, you are a relatively large farm. You have a large team, but you don't have like H2A um, workers. Um, is that been intentional? You just feel like you can build a community of people locally?
1: Yeah, I think, um, we have looked into it, uh, in the past, but we haven't gone that direction, not for particularly any reason. Um, That I can think of more that we have we have so many applicants um just in our community and trying to um really build our cooperative is is an important thing so like people are living here full time and can see a life from themselves um but but you know that's just where we're oriented towards yeah
0: so talk to us a little bit about the cooperative. How many people are in the cooperative and, and how does that operate?
1: So it's been between two to three since the beginning. And now we're transitioning to five, kind of like this month. So um, that will be our biggest team so far. And um, the cooperative model that we've come up with is, is still very much based on um, your job description, your day-to-day position at the farm doesn't change widely when you become an owner, you're still very much um, going and looking at your kind of job description and your work contract as like that role that you hold as the number one. But we do have um, monthly owner meetings that are higher level um, decision making. So, deciding on the budget for the year, deciding on large capital purchases. Um, If there's, you know, a disaster that happens, navigating that disaster, if there's, um, you know, a a very big conflict that happens between two staff, that would go to the the owner team if it felt like it couldn't get resolved between um, just D and I as general managers. Um, so there are these upper level de- decisions um, and we have this matrix that we follow that outlines essentially what are owner decisions, what are, you know, manager level decisions, other staff, um, so that we can kind of like help guide that process. And um, and then everyone in the business has equal share. So even though Dee and I have been there in, with Rocksteady from the jump, we don't have any more voting rights or equity rights. We're um, essentially have one vote just like everyone else. Um, and, and then at the end of the year, the um, owner dividends, the payout, would be divided by hours worked. Okay. Um, and and that's in addition to the payroll. Everyone, all owners are on payroll. So we don't, we're not a farm that is like a number of farms where you're you're taking owners draws whenever you want or like at the end of the year based on how well the farm did. Um, we're actually just very much by the books in terms of all owners um, track their hours, get paid through payroll like any employee. And then, if we do well at the end of the season, that um, profit, some of it stays in the business and then some of it gets split up between the owners.
0: Gotcha. Now, so like initial investments, I'm sure you put like money in originally to buy equipment and stuff. Do you, are you gradually taking that um, capital investments at the beginning gradually out, or how does that work?
1: Great question. Yeah. So we actually (laughs) didn't start with a lot of money um, invested in the business. Um, Each owner put in $500 um, and we were able to secure a loan for the buyout of that previous farmer. Um, So we bought a lot of his equipment um, and then additional equipment on top of that through our startup loan, which was $115,000. um, and that was through a, um, cooperative loaning, Mm -hmm. um, institute. That's essentially funds specifically co-ops, um, primarily run by BIPOC and queer, um, business owners. But, um, their whole model is very different than a lot of other learning institutions. So we felt like we could, um, you know, there was less risk essentially. Mm-hmm. So even though we were we didn't we weren't financially um, backed as individuals because none of us had um, much personal savings or family money. We felt like we could do that jump because the learning institute that we're working with. Um, doesn't collateralize and doesn't like hold individuals um, liable. It's really the risk lied with the LLC, which was working with a very um, non-extractive learning institute. So it's, it's in fund. So now it's called Seed Commons now is okay. the official name of that fund.
0: Very cool. So you farmed both in California and New York. What would you say the main differences you've seen between the two as far as the land practices and farming community?
1: I mean, California is just just massive. You know, I think Mm. there's a lot more larger scale farms there in general and more um, kind of Global trading going on, more lobbying connections to DC. There's just, it, it all feels a little bit more political. Um, and I think that there's definitely that type of farming in New York State as well, but it tends to be not quite in the Hudson Valley area as much as um, in the Western part of the state uh, where right. there's larger scale farms there. Um, but California's unique, you know, It's, it's it really is like, Like, you know, there's so much food comes out of California and it goes so many places. So just being in that environment is very, very different. Um, and I felt like I learned a lot just about how food systems worked in general. I spent a good amount of time visiting other large scale farms, um, and, you know, just trying to kind of understand them from the inside, um to better understand just in general, like what is agriculture like in the United States? You know, what is this? What part of it do I want to be a part of, you know, having grown up in kind of like a smaller scale farming community, um, you know, average around 20 acres is like when my dad was farming. Mm. And and that's so different from a lot of those farms in California. So wanting to understand that um, and absorb it.
0: So in California, were you on those massive farms or were you on more of the mixed CSA farms?
1: No, I was on smaller scale. Yeah, I was definitely, and I did some urban ag stuff there too. Um, I did have the opportunity because I was interested in education work to um, spend a number of weeks over the years at larger scale farms, like learning Uh kind of in like a I know I was a student, essentially, I got trained on these large tractors and got trained on like kind of water rights and stuff like that through a couple of different programs. Um, That was really interesting. Yeah. And different, like just visiting pure interest, um, a lot of different farms.
0: Yeah, yeah. California is crazy out there. Mm -hmm. And it's such a cool thing. because Well, the season is crazy, too, because it's just such a long, drawn out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I missed the seasons. I mean, that's one of the reasons I left is like, it was too yeah. much to farm so close to year round there. Yeah. Yeah. I love the break. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and in New York, especially where you are, you get all four seasons. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's really nice to get that. So talk to us about your pollinate apprenticeship program.
1: Yeah. We're so excited about this. Um, it's something that we've been, you know, just slowly, slowly marinating on for a number of years. Um, but it feels really exciting to, to launch it this year with our pilot in August. Um, but it's, it's something also that we felt like, you know, we weren't quite ready. We weren't in a stage where we knew enough about our own systems and that we could train anyone else, you know? So it feels like, we're, we're in a good place. We have an amazing team. We're all excited about the program. So, um, we're starting small with four apprentices that will all be paid and housed. So we're paying for their housing and, um, which
0: I might add is not cheap where you are.
1: (laughs) No. Yeah. You can say that again. Yeah. Yeah. Housing's a, a huge challenge for farmers in our area. Um, but yeah, so we're, I'm accepting applicants, um, mostly just in the Northeast. Um, We are partnered specifically with a great training program in New York City called Farm School NYC. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And so part of the desire is working with students and alumni from that New York City-based urban urban ag program and giving those um, folks an opportunity to learn more large scale rural farming. Mm -hmm. And um, we're also going to be partnering with them on kind of the curriculum around the tail ends of the season. So although we're um, doing the hands-on component in season, we want to make sure that there's a really holistic, well-rounded curriculum that we're giving them that will include like Zoom and different things like that.
0: yeah. Cause I think that's one of the things with a apprenticeship or internship um, program, it's always challenging. And I, I know there's always, that can be that rub between, am I here just to be cheap labor or am I here to actually learn? And there's that, there's that, um, I guess that, 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 uh, traction or that, uh, friction I find. And so I, I, I applaud you. I think you said there earlier of you waited to launch this because you didn't feel like you knew you had your systems in place first. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, so that's really cool that you're, how you're setting that up, that you've been really intentional about that. So make sure they actually get a really good education. Um, and you know, the zoom aspect with other farms, that kind of stuff is really cool too.
1: Yeah. And we think it's, It's a unique program and, and we have a lot of incredible educators on our staff, you know, who are, have been doing education work and farming off and on. So we're set up really well to, to hold space for, you know, beginner farmers and, and also create a really different environment from a lot of the other training uh, spaces that we know of, which are. Oftentimes, larger institutions, um, universities, um, that might not feel welcoming to both BIPOC communities or LGBTQ communities. So, the fact that we're making this specifically for that community um, is is unique, and um, and we definitely want to uplift. Just um, kind of like how that this is one. You know, opportunity that we're trying to do, but we need more of these other places too, like training programs that are funded for that people fundraise and donate to that are really run by the communities that need those training programs, not necessarily just larger institutions and nonprofits.
0: Hmm. So if you were to start your farm all over again, what kind of systems and processes would you go back and put in place at the beginning?
1: <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a ride. I think you know I don't regret trying flowers, you know, but I think if we were to do it again, it would would have been nice not to have so many enterprises at once in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think also, I wish we had the funding from the jump to have a, a tractor that was new. Like now, last two years ago, we were able to purchase a um, a brand new Kubota and the amount of time and headache and stress that that has relieved us versus mm-hmm. working with older tractors that you know were cheaper off the jump but caused us so much stress when they broke down mid-season we had to like you know get them repaired and then we lost like two successions you know what I mean like yes yeah that I feel like it would have like to have had a more reliable tractor from the very beginning.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree with you. Having one tractor that will work and whenever you need it to is so key. And the last mm-hmm. two days I've spent I've jumped tractors six times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And
0: they were they were two of my old tractors and I was like, okay, I need to re just you know, figure out what's wrong and replace either it's the alternator or maybe it's just the battery that needs to go. But um, being able to have the main tractor, just, I'm always getting on, it's a brand new, you know, hundred, only a hundred hours on it now is so, so, so nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that that is one key thing. I think just like, also, you know, we started out like not being able to pay our farmers very much and we still struggle with that. You know, I think yes. our average, most of our farmers make $15 an hour and, um, and general managers D and I make $17 an hour. So it's not a huge range there, but like when we first started out, we were like cusping like $11 an hour, you know? And I feel like, Mm. and that's like, the minimum wage was lower then, but it also um, was just all we could afford. But that really does impact the farm when you go to the lowest, you know, rate that you feel like you can survive that. it that also is like okay then your farmers are really stressed because they're not making enough money to live off of this work
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they're not going to come back the next year so you're putting all this energy into training people who are struggling just being at your farm so I feel like the other thing I would have done differently is just somehow <laughs> figured out a budget that would have paid off the bat like $15 an hour at least you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: um instead of like just struggling so much. And I think we did the best that we could. Like, honestly, I know that a lot of farmers don't take any paychecks their first couple of years, um, for various reasons. Um, but, you know, that wasn't an option for us because this was our primary income. So we did, you know, we did the best that we could.
0: Mm -hmm but you wish you'd been able to change it. And I, I, you know, that is one of the things that I feel like, you know, vegetable farmers work so, so, so hard. I mean, the calorie requirements for vegetable farmers, one of the top ones out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, typically they're not paid um, in conversation of how hard they work. So.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's Um, something, and we're striving, we're trying to get to $20 an hour. So, you know, which is hard when the price of food isn't, going up like that you
0: know yes especially this year the inflation is happening and you're seeing you know price of everything else go up but you haven't been able to bring the price of that up all right with that let's stop here and take a quick break in a minute we'll be back and finish the rest of this interview hey thriving farmers where are you on your thriving farmer journey So if you go to our website, growingfarmers.com, you can click on the assessment button and that will take you to a form, ask you a few different questions and that will help you figure out where you are on the five stage thriving farmer journey. And what that does then is kicks you a customized PDF that gives you resources to know exactly what to focus on next in your business to go to the next level. So go to growingfarmers.com and click on the assessment. And we are back and talking about, um, from Rock Steady Farm. So talk to us a little bit about your marketing. Um, I th- you're more of a CSA farm, correct?
1: We've um, done a lot of wholesale in the past as well. And right now we're primarily CSA. Um, but I'd say at one point we were majority wholesale as we were building our CSA. So I have a little like, bit of experience in both those worlds.
0: hmm Okay. So, and which do you prefer?
1: Definitely CSA. Yeah. Okay. Um, Hands down. Mm -hmm.
0: And that's because the interaction with the customers or.
1: For me, it's a guaranteed outlet that just stress wise is massive. I think that's, that's huge. And then um, connection to our members, like ability to, build community in a more concrete way. It's, it's more tangible. We can have work days, we can send newsletters. There's like interaction back and forth. Um, and, and also just the price of food that we can sell. So our price point is, you know, double what we could get on the wholesale market.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now are you certified organic or not?
1: We're non-certified, but we um, practice
0: organic. Yeah. And that obviously affects the wholesale prices drastically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, I, I agree with you on the CSA part of that. Okay. So how do you find your CSA members? What's your marketing consist of?
1: So we started off um, doing a lot of uh, outreach locally. We did door-to-door mailers. Um, we put flyers up everywhere. We went to every community event we could possibly think of you know like just Mm -hmm. uh, we hosted like meet the farmer events we really were going all out because we wanted to build the local pickup um in a real big way you know we're like okay we we've got 65 members our first year so how can we get that to 200 so we're just like doing everything um but we ended up realizing that there's kind of like a cap at 100 in our area in terms of who's going to be signing up annually. Oh. Um, just there's not the density of people that is needed for a larger scale, and um, so we did branch out to New York City. And I think we were really lucky in that um, both D and I lived in New York City. D for Um, majority of their life and um we had a lot of community in new york city so just like friends people we used to work with who wanted to join but also um we had connections to community centers and um and different um health centers that we had been going to and were part of the lgbtq community that we were in in new york so we we're like, okay, well, we want to feed people in our community. So we'll go to these community centers. And we started this um, outreach that was very targeted to those community centers. So um, the first couple of years, it meant us talking to a lot of staff members, um, we would do presentations with like slideshows at like staff meetings, which with some of these stuff, there's like 200 staff, you know, so it's pretty substantial numbers of people. And, um, and then they would do outreach to their social media, their newsletters, um, which we're lucky, like the LGBTQ center in, in New York has a huge newsletter. You know, I think there's about 80,000 people. Oh, wow. And, um, And they were doing outreach for us, which was new for them. Like, when have they ever done outreach for a farm? You know, so this is like very different. There was a lot of educating that was going on um, in terms of us kind of like hand feeding them like the text and images and working with um, graphic designer and stuff. So um, yeah, and I'd say that 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 helped kind of kickstart those those sites and then continually um working on kind of like marketing over the years and and different kind of outreach through those partners has been the most effective um because our newsletter is only 3,000 people so it's which might sound like a lot but I think a lot of those people are not CSA member mm-hmm. people you know they're people who just are interested in us and we maybe be friends and um and I think being able to kind of like tap into other larger groups listservs and have that support really help build to the 500 um and I think additionally there's um a lot of interest in just the last year through co- like the world of COVID where people mm-hmm. wanted to have their local food sources secured. And I think, um, CSA memberships, um, rose a lot in the last two seasons. Um, and we saw that as well, you know, we had a 200 person wait list last year. So, um, it was, it was quite significant that shift in demand.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now with the CSA, are you providing a, what size of shares do you do? And kind of like, what's your philosophy for how you pack that?
1: So we do um, half shares and full shares. And we um, offer like around five vegetables for the half shares and around um, eight to 10 for the full shares. Uh, We try to do a diversity of crops, like a lot of CSAs. Um, I think um, we also buy in sometimes, you know, there's certain crops that we don't grow very well, and are Mm -hmm. not financially uh, viable for us to grow when we do the, you know, analysis at the end of the year of like dollars per square foot, you know, potatoes, is like nothing, you know, like it yeah. and there's certain crops that were just not like sweet corn, potatoes, where we can get those locally and organically, luckily, um, and buy those in. So that's helped us a lot in terms of being able to to feed a large CSA, but not have to grow everything for the CSA.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So with that then. Um, what would you say your favorite crop to grow is?
1: Well, um, I think well, I have a lot. I mean, our business-wise, I think our favorite crops are kale and tomatoes. Okay, um, that's we grow the most of those two items. That's our wholesale item. So we're doing six hundred pounds of kale every other week um, to a large account, and we're doing a lot of tomatoes. We do like about. Just in tomatoes, whole size wholesale, like twenty five grand, which
0: wow, you know, yeah,
1: isn't nothing. And um, but I think my favorite to grow, I do love peppers in general. Mm-hmm. I love peppers, and um, yeah, tell me about peppers. We grow way too many peppers than we need to grow, but um, I love the different varieties and flavors, and mm-hmm. actually harvesting them. Is very yes, satisfying. and they're not that heavy, so you're pulling them out of the field, and it's actually not that heavy. It's not
0: a carrot root weight. Mm-hmm. So, what uh, what varieties do you like of the peppers right now? What are your top varieties?
1: Um, I like Padrone peppers, mm-hmm. um, and I like the kind of Italian friars like Jimmy Nardello. Um, yes, we grow King of the North, which is a variety from the Hudson Seed Company, Hudson Valley Seed Company. Um, And that's a great, just classic red bell pepper um, that specifically does well in the Northeast. So those are some of my top.
0: Very nice. Um, What's your favorite way to cook the Padron pepper?
1: Um, We, I like just the... um, Kind of on a skillet situation. Yeah.
0: So just yeah. blister it, yeah. throw some salt on it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Yeah. What would you say to new farmers that are thinking of getting it in into the the business? Um, what kind of advice would you give them?
1: I think get as much skill under you as possible before starting your own operation. I think that's something. Um, and also... If, you know think about cooperative models um you know it doesn't i'd say starting a business is you know it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life like it was just mm-hmm. and we were hit with a lot of challenges you know we got a tornado hit us like our second season we got you know we had a lot going on um but any startup farm is really hard so i'd say thinking about a cooperative model, um, to me, is really um, what can lead to more sustainable model for farms in terms of just resilience and, you know, making it, you know, if you do burn out as a farmer, and you're, or you get sick, or you get hurt, there are other people there to continue on what you've started. So Mm -hmm. that, to me, is something I think about a lot in terms of, my day-to-day, like, okay, who am I cross-training? Are there redundancies all the time? You know, if something happened to, like, one of our farmers, would other people be able to jump in? And that's the same for me as an owner. I would, I want to make sure that everything I do, other people can do, so that mm-hmm. if I need to take a break or if my family member passes away, I can do that, and it's not going to crumble. And I think that's... Um, really key to just farmer mental health, key to making this like a sustainable livelihood. Um, you know, it's just trying to prevent burnout is trying to kind of not feed into this mentality that I think a lot of farms just normalize, which is, oh, it's normal to work 80 hours a week. It's normal mm-hmm. not to get paid that much. It's normal to like lose your mind every June. Like, no, it shouldn't be normal. That shouldn't be this, like, just standard of, um, you know, acceptance that we're in right now. And I think that that's something um, that I feel really strongly about is, is like, okay, what is a farm model that can also really center mental health and make this um, a different type of work culture than what we've seen the last hundred years where, you know, really, farming has been based on exploitation, slavery, um, oftentimes, like, very kind of top-down mentalities. And it's not based on the well-being of farmers and, like, their longevity in this work and their health, mental and physical so I think there's just a large emphasis that I want to project onto any farmers out there, and new farmers especially is just don't um, don't deprioritize your own health, you know, it, because if you deprioritize human health, you're going to deprioritize the soil health, you're going to deprioritize your business, you know, it's not, it all has to focus on just like the well-being of the people as much as anything else.
0: Yeah. Because if the people can't take care of themselves, then they're going to cut corners on a lot of other things.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say your favorite tool on the farm is?
1: I think the perfecta. I don't know. I think it's a great implement. I think it's a really great one in terms of just kind of helping break down, um, you know, cover crops when they're almost there. And then also the fact that you can use it as a final bed prep um -hmm. i think it's a great implement yeah
0: well it's it's yeah it's not as aggressive as a rototiller so it it helps with soil health a lot more than that i feel but it still does a fair good job of making that final seed bed and as you said breaking things down
1: and for us we have rocky soil so it's like the rototiller is not ideal because we just have to replace those um parts so often.
0: Yeah. The tines and the, and the gearing and stuff. Uh, What size of a perfected do you have?
1: We're about to transition to 10 foot right now. We have a six foot um, so that we could do kind of like individual bed turnover. Okay. Um, But we're trying to do 10 foot. I think now that we're scaled out (laughs) of flowers um, when we had our flower operation, Things we needed to keep things really tight in terms of the implements we got. Um, even our disc is small, so that we could kind of turn just like one bed in that section over really yeah. quick. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So well, now, now you're changing. at
0: the scale where you're doing two beds at once, probably. Yeah, or
1: five. You know. Yeah. 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 Or ten. We're. I think generally speaking, we're doing more like ten blocks. Yeah. Um which are, uh, what,
0: what our whole crop plan is. Maybe. Cool. Well, will that six foot be for sale? Or are you going to keep that around?
1: Oh, likely for sale. Yeah. Okay. We're going to be selling a bunch of stuff this fall. So <laughs> look out for our emails.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to sign up because I may be in the market for a six foot. Oh, great. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's always, uh, it's something that I've been looking for for a bit now. All right. Well, cool. Um, well, any final thoughts before we go, this has been a fun conversation
1: um yeah i guess one last one i think also for the csa farmers out there um do look into the sliding scale model um i do recommend it as a way um to reach lower income people as well as um you know feeding that diversity of people that normally a csa draws in the higher income level who can put Mm -hmm. that down payment but Um, on our website we have a webinar that we did around our sliding scale that can be really helpful Um, but I do think it's a really great way for farmers who are passionate about kind of like the food access piece to kind of to trial and I think there there are ways that farmers are doing this um, all over the Country all over the world. I've been. I'm networked with some other farmers in different spots, and the sliding scale model is is working well. And I think it's just um, something that I wish I saw more of. So just encouraging that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that is great, and I um, I think that is something that I think as as farmers as pushing the small farm movement forward do need to think about is how do we bring the people that don't have the resources to get fresh food. Um, It was something I, I think it was maybe another podcast I mentioned it on, but you look at the people that are in low come in neighborhoods and so often they don't feel good because they're not eating good food. I and mean, when you don't feel good, you don't have the initiative to go out and do a lot of things sometimes. You're just trying to literally subside, subside instead of, you know, having endless health and uh, and when you're not you are not well, then you're also going to the doctor more frequently and you have to take off time from work and all of that. So, you know, getting good solid nutrition to these lower income neighborhoods is just so key.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on and sharing about your farm and the awesome things you're doing there.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks so much.
0: Hey, thriving farmers! Have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you.